Those are precious words that we sing, our God. They are words of our redemption, of our salvation, of Your grace, of the glory of Your Son. Why should we share in His reward? We have no answer but grace, because You have made it so, because You have done it for Your own glory, for Your own pleasure, and for our everlasting joy in the Son to Your glory. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the spirit whom you have given to us to make these things precious to our hearts, to make the Son glorious, and to make the Father our delight. We ask you now, as we open your word, that we would hear your voice, that we would respond in faith, that you would, Holy Spirit, do the work that that you have designed to do through the ministry of the preached word, and that you would conform us to the image of Christ who know you. And we pray this in the matchless name of him who died and rose again for our sin, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, go ahead and be opening up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 46. We're going to close this chapter this morning, and then we're going to spend four weeks in the book of Ruth under Pastor Reardon, and then uh, after that, we will then pick it back up in Matthew chapter 22. But go this morning as we come again once more to Matthew 21 in the parable of the landowner. As I noted last week, this parable is essentially a history of Israel, and it is a tragic history. It's a history of receiving such opportunity, such blessing, such privilege from the Lord, such opportunity for forgiveness and grace and blessing, and yet only to forfeit it by refusing God His rightful glory that He deserved from His people whom He formed by His own sovereign purposes. They, instead of righteousness, chose wickedness. They, instead of obedience, chose disobedience and self-will. So the blessing that God sought to give them, the blessing that God extended to them, was rejected, and it was removed, and instead turned into judgment. Now against this backdrop is the incredible kindness of God, the incredible faithfulness of God to His promises, the incredible mercies of the Lord who did not discard His people when we would have expected Him to do so. Even though they continually scorned, God continually reached out to them. And as we noted, it's not just that we put this in some past tense sense of Israel. Look at what they did over there. Look at that wicked nation. Israel is a picture of us, of man's fallenness and their rejection of the word of the Lord. All the way from Cain who rejected true worship of the Lord after the fall of Adam... So fallen men and wicked men have always done. It is a history of fallen man. God has extended Himself in grace. God has extended Himself, revealing Himself. And man has continually rejected that revelation. It is the most grievous with Israel, however, because of the greatness of the privileges that she received. But frankly, it is even a worse rejection by those who live this side of the cross and this side of the atonement and this side of the ascension and this side of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Paul's words in Acts 17.31. Or beginning in verse 30. Therefore, having over... And he's speaking to the nations, as it were, here, Gentiles... Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. The resurrection then stands as God's ultimate testimony to the accomplishment of His work of grace, the salvation in, in Christ, but also to the consequences of rejecting that where the one who is given a Savior will become judge. And we might even consider ourselves in America, a nation who has received such privileges of God, 
a nation who has received such blessings that we have stood now for these generations as a superpower in the world, untold wealth and influence, having received much spiritual blessing from the Lord, and not unlike Israel, having rejected many of those blessings and turned on Him and exalted wickedness instead of righteousness, have exalted ourselves and our own authority rather than acknowledging God's over us. We, in many ways as a nation, have failed to produce the fruit of God's blessing. So we must not think of Israel just as over there and us as innocent. This is a picture of sin. A picture of sin in man. J.C. Ryle said this, Nothing offends God so much as neglected privileges. Much has been given to us and much then is required. So this passage stands then also as a warning to those who hear the gospel repeatedly but continually refuse to yield in the heart to the authority of God and respond to His grace. And it is also, we must add, an encouragement to all who are under the conviction of sin that He withholds His grace and His salvation from none who come to Him. Let's read through the parable once more. And then we'll pick it up where we left off last week. Begin in verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone and this came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When the people sought to, and when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him To be a prophet. We noted last week that the backdrop to the Lord's parable here is Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. In Isaiah chapter 5, God, through his prophet Isaiah, gave to them a poem, as it were, what starts out as a love poem, a poem of a beloved for his vineyard. It is an illustration then of God's kindness to His people. An illustration of God's care for His people. His sovereign calling them to Himself. Planting them in the land. Providing them with everything that was necessary to be a fruitful vine as it were. And yet, when God expected from them good fruit, when He expected from them righteousness, when He expected them from them loving obedience, instead He found only worthless fruit. Rotten fruit. He found wickedness. He found self-will, idolatry. All of those things that would provoke the Lord ultimately to send them into judgment. In Isaiah chapter 5, the context is the judgment that's going to come from the hand of Babylon that would put, in that case, Judah into captivity in the land of Babylon. In this case, the rejection and the treachery of God's people is even worse is even worse. Not only are they in the process of rejecting God's prophetic word, but the very word of God Himself before them. And so He tells them in verse 33, 
Reminding them of this parable in Isaiah 5, saying, just like them, God has given you blessings. And God has rented it out to vine growers, which in this case are the leaders, the so-called shepherds of Israel. Those who were entrusted with the care of God's people. And in this parable, when the harvest came, God sent His slave to these vine growers to receive His produce. And instead, these vine growers, these leaders of the people of Israel, when God sent His slaves, the prophets, to them, they instead of responding to God's Word through them, rejected it. Instead of humility, instead of obedience, there was rebellion. And so in the parable, He sent slaves increasingly larger groups and their response to them was humiliation, even death. The shocking element of this parable comes, however, in verse 37. Though God had sent His prophets, though they had continually rejected the word of the Lord through His servants, we would have expected then at that point to say, or for God to say, I am done with them. This is a hard-hearted people. They are stiff-necked. They are only ripe for judgment. Righteousness has not come from them. But the shocking element is, in verse 37, that He doesn't do that. The parable we would understand if it ended at 36, but it doesn't. He says, this landowner representing God... He says, I will send to them my son, my son, my precious son, my beloved son. And when I send them to him to them, they will respond to him. But what happens? Well, the vine growers saw the son and they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. They killed him. Treachery, rebellion, surprise at the depth of wickedness at these vine growers. And here, Jesus unfolding to them their own hearts and their own rejection of God the Son. Now they would not have immediately understood Son to be Son of God, but as we mentioned, that's exactly how Jesus mentioned it. And that's exactly the case that Matthew has been building They have rejected God's Word. They have rejected God's Word. And now they are rejecting God's Son. And so Jesus asked them at this parable, which they at this point are largely clueless to. They would have had some understanding that it was directed against them. They they understood the previous parable was directed against them. They understand in verse 45 that he was speaking about them when he gives his conclusion. So it would have been there somewhere, but apparently so clouded over by their own self-righteous indignation at this story that when Jesus asked them to give an answer to his question, they do not even seem to grasp, but they are condemning themselves. That's how blind they were, really, in their self Righteousness. But nonetheless, he asked them a question in verse 40. Or excuse me, verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? What will he do to them? And they give the obvious answer. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay the proceeds at the proper season. And this is an incredibly severe indictment. But understand that these are those who know the law and they know it well. They understand that there is a right sense of justice that would call down the strictest and the most harsh and most severe penalties of the law for this great offense of these vine growers. And so they give it in incredibly harsh language. They recognize the rebellion inherent in their actions, and so they give the most stinging and forceful condemnation. And notice here that they condemn not only the actions of these vine growers, but they condemn them themselves. In other words, it is a moral condemnation. They call them those wretches, those wretches, those wicked people. And they acknowledge the landowner's justification in whatever 
penalty he brings. The penalty should match the crime. And since they are wretches and have shown the utmost wickedness, then they should come to the most wicked end. And that's a powerful language that he uses here. It's not simply death in a a humanitarian way. It's not simply to cease their life. It is that they should pay and suffer dearly for what they have done. So terrible is their act and their offense against the landowner. They also acknowledge, notice, that the opportunity for caring for the vineyard should be removed from these vine growers and that it should be given to another. Now you may have thought this as we have gone through here, but who does this remind you of? Who does this remind you of? Let me mention to you briefly here a similar situation, yet not in the... Not from the lips of rebellious leaders, but from the lips of King David himself. If you'll remember that David, after he committed severe crimes, murdering Uriah, the death of, or the husband of Bathsheba, with whom he had committed adultery and impregnated. David, who covered over his sin and who put to death one, in that case, who was more righteous than him. And he continued on for a period of time having concealed the sin, and God sent to him Nathan the prophet. And he gave a parable uh, to David, at the end of which David gave the harshest condemnation. He gave the harshest penalty of the law. After the parable, it says in 2 Samuel 12, that David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and he had no compassion. And then Nathan uttered those infamous words, Behold, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, as I who anointed you king over Israel and as I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. And he gave him many blessings and yet David committed an act, as it were, of treachery against the Lord. And so it is here with these leaders. But what is the difference? What is the difference? And I want us not to miss this. One, we need to notice that there is sin and rejection in the heart of these leaders, but it is not uncommon to even God's own people. This kind of sin that can be committed. What is the difference here? What is the difference here? Well, the difference is one, the very context. They are rejecting the very God who created them. They are rejecting their very own Messiah. This is something that David did not do. He was sensitive to the Lord's word, though he had sinned greatly. But I want to bring out one other point. When David was confronted with his guilt, when he was confronted with his self-righteousness, he responded in brokenness and repentance. When he was confronted with his hypocrisy, he saw the wretchedness of his deeds. He took responsibility for it and he turned to the Lord. And that's how it is with believers. Though sin sometimes we may do grievously, that sin is offensive to us. It causes brokenness in us. It causes us to turn to the Lord and trust in His grace and in His goodness. But that's not what happened with these leaders. Because they did not belong to the Lord, because their heart was far from Him, and because they were not truly the Lord's leaders and the Lord's children, but in fact, they were agents for the devil himself, which Jesus said to them back in John chapter 8, you are of your father, the devil. And so when Jesus exposes their sin, unlike the repentance that we saw in David, it is going to produce in them only more rage, more self-justification, greater envy for their reputation. Instead of moving them nearer to God, it is going to move them farther away. And so Jesus, though, is going to condemn them He says in verse 42, after they give the right answer, he should, those vine growers should be judged. Jesus says to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is stinging. 
This is a stinging rebuke. In other words, he's saying, are you the teachers of Israel and you don't even understand your own scriptures and how you are fulfilling them? It's sarcasm by the Lord. He's being intentionally sarcastic. But in that sarcasm, there is a design to expose to them the inexcusable ignorance of their rebellion. The issue is not that it wasn't clear. And this is very important for us to understand. It's not that it wasn't clear. It was that what was clear, they hated. It is that what was clear, they rejected. They were suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They were trying to hold down and silence what their conscience was constantly pricking them to know to be true. Why? Because that's how sin works in a fallen heart. When the fallen heart that rejects the truth of God is exposed and the conscience is pricked, it attacks, it tries to silence in any way that it can that voice of accusing conscience within them that would expose guilt. It is the response of a fallen heart to try to justify that sin in any way that it can or attack whatever is causing or is the means of it being convicted. It's exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 3. Darkness hates the light because when it comes to the light, its deeds are exposed to evil, evil as evil. And here the light of the world is standing before them, exposing their deeds as evil, and they have the harshest and the strongest reaction against it. So Jesus is saying, you are the teachers in Israel, and don't you even know what your Bible says? And again, this is powerful imagery, very powerful imagery. He's quoting here from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 which is largely understood as a messianic psalm. And interestingly, it is one of the most often quoted psalms in the New Testament. And this is not his first use of it. If you'll remember back in chapter 9 of Matthew 21, this is what, it's Psalm 118, or a verse from Psalm 118, that was on the lips of the people, the crowds going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's from Psalm 118, a little bit further down than what Jesus is quoting here in the parable. Now what does he mean by this imagery? What does he mean? Well, let's go back and look at Psalm 118 just briefly to understand the context. Psalm 118. As I said, this is clearly a messianic psalm. It was understood to be so by the Jews. There is some application here also to the nation of Israel, but it was primarily referring to the Davidic king, to the Davidic king. This is the last of what are known as the Egyptian Hillel songs, which began in Psalm 113, now ending here in Psalm 116. They are songs essentially of praise to, uh, by God's people to God for His deliverances from them, uh, for them. God's deliverances. It was sung at Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, and Pentecost. So here it is, a song of deliverance, Psalm 118. And in verses 1 through 21, it's primarily a recounting of thanksgiving for the Lord's mighty acts of salvation for those who trust in Him. Look at verse 4. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say, His loving kindness is everlasting. From my distress, when I called upon the Lord, the Lord answered me and He set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not long, I will not fear. What can man do to me? It is a testimony of God's faithfulness to His covenant that He will not let the wicked prevail against His righteous ones. Though He may discipline them severely, He will not let them be destroyed. Yes, discipline comes from the wicked. Yes, God uses that to purify His people. But ultimately, He will keep and preserve His righteous ones. In verse 19 the psalmist says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. 
The gates of righteousness here is a reference to the temple, an allusion to the temple. And his point here is this, that though death threatened him, the Lord has opened up and established him in righteousness. Though the wicked were a cause of fear, God has established him as the one in the right, as God's servant, because he has trusted in the Lord, because he has committed his way to him. It is a declaration that the Lord is righteous. He is His strength and He is His salvation. The gates of the Lord are opened in verse 20 and the righteous will enter in to it. And then in verses 22 through 24, the Lord's salvation is noted as reversing the plans of the wicked. They have rejected and discarded this one as a worthless stone. In verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. The idea is this. That despite their rejection, despite the enemies of the Lord, even from His own people who have set themselves against the Lord's righteous one, though they have considered Him weak, though they have considered Him discarded, God has not. And He has established that one as the chief cornerstone. He has established that one as the most important stone in the building. The cornerstone, you probably know, was the... The, the important stone, I'm building a structure. Off of that stone, every other stone was aligned. If that stone was off, every other stone was off. So it was the most important. It was the stone to which all other stones must conform. So what God has established as strong, they have rejected as weak. And indeed, this is something that is from the Lord Verse 23, it is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Through their wickedness, God established His righteous one. The one they considered to be weak, God in that same one showed Himself to be strong. What they considered to be unimportant, God has in that same one established as the most important. And it ends then with a psalm with words of gratitude and blessing and praise to the Lord. Verse 29, give thanks to the Lord for He is good and His loving kindness is everlasting. Now go back to Matthew 21. What is the indictment? They would have gotten it. It is an indictment that is deep. It is an indictment that is powerful. And it is an indictment that is obvious. Again, they would get this at the end of it. They understood that he was speaking to them. The builders and the vine growers, the leaders and the teachers of Israel have rejected the stone of Christ. They had considered him weak, unimportant. They have considered him despised, as it were. They were against him. And yet God is going to establish him as the chief cornerstone. What they discarded as unimportant, God is going to establish as the most important. When they treat it as unglorious, God is going to establish as the very cornerstone of His glory among His people. Here, these who were the keepers of the law have become the enemies of the Lord, and yet God's plan will be established. He's essentially saying, look, even as you did with the prophets and now as you're doing with the Son, your plans will ultimately fail and God's will prevail. He is the cornerstone. Don't think that what you're doing, what you're conniving in your hearts even now is going to win over the will and the plan and the sovereignty of God. He is the cornerstone. And this is a rejection that characterizes the people not only of that generation and of all the generations of the unbelieving Israel, but it continues even to this day. Let me read to you from Acts chapter 4. You can turn there if you want, but I'm just going to make a few comments. As they were going out, as the gospel had begun to spread from Judea to Samaria to the other ends of the earth, through the mouth of his apostles and his prophets. It says in verse 1 of chapter 4 of Acts that as they were speaking to the people, the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. 
So what did these leaders do? Just as they did with the Lord, they laid their hands on them. They tried to silence them. On verse 5, on the next day their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly descent. And they placed them in the center and they began to inquire, by what power and what name have you done this? And Peter marked this, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, one whom they had healed previously, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief corner stone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved." Again, the testimony is against them. The Holy Spirit has continually borne witness and you are continually resisting His work. And yet Christ stands by the resurrection as the one whom God has appointed for the salvation of His people and the judgment of those who reject Him. Turn over a few other pages in Acts. When you see this made even more strongly. And we won't go through the chapter, but in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is giving a defense against the Jews. He's giving a defense against the Jews and he is confronting them for their constant rejection of the work of God. They rejected God's work in Moses. They rejected God's word from Sinai. They rejected God at every part of of God's calling out to them. In verse 39, our fathers were unwilling to become obedient to Him, but repudiated Him, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. Listen to what he says in verse 51. What is the indictment? He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears and are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. This is your M.O., This is what you keep doing. You keep hearing the Spirit of God as He bears witness and you keep rejecting that witness. You keep scorning the one who is bringing to you His salvation. Even this testimony of Stephen was designed to call them to repentance, but they would have none of it. Look at verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. In other words, their conscience was pricked. They knew that these words were true. They knew that they were guilty. They knew that they were doing just what their forefathers had done. But did it bring them to repentance? No. They began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he, being Stephen, gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But when they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witness laid aside their robes, witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is what they're doing. This is what they're doing. This is what sin does. This is what their refusal and their proud and their hard-hearted reaction to God's very own offer of salvation, their own Messiah. And it doesn't end here. It continues throughout, throughout, even after the resurrection of Christ. And beloved, as we'll mention in a minute, it's what's happening ultimately today. It's what's still happening at the testimony and the witness to Christ as the Messiah. So they rejected the kingdom by rejecting the king. Why? 
what was already mentioned, because they will not yield to his authority. This is what sin does. At the end of the day, it does not want to yield to the authority of God. And so they, like the vine growers, sought to keep for themselves what is rightfully God's. Again, this is the story of Israel. So what is God going to do? What is God going to do? Look at verse 43. Essentially, he's going to rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper time. He says, therefore, in verse 33, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Devastating. He's going to remove, essentially, their opportunity for salvation. The unique opportunity that God is giving to them to experience the blessing of the kingdom, He's going to remove from them. Now, what is He meaning here? What is He, what is he saying? The immediate and first level of the Lord's words are this. The gracious offer of the kingdom, the sphere of God's grace and forgiveness and rule in His Son, the very hope of the prophets whom you say that you believe, the very anticipation of all of the scriptures that you say that you love, is being taken away from you. It's being taken away from you, these leaders, and it will be given to a people who will produce the fruit of it. Like the tax collectors and the prostitutes back in verse 32. Jesus is grinding the point home. But here's what I want you to understand with this, is that He is destroying theirs and what so many people's false understanding of what it means to be in the kingdom. They were sure that they were in. They were sure of it. And here Jesus is saying, you're not only not in, but it's going to be taken away even the opportunity that you did have. And what does He mean here then by the fruit of the kingdom? What does he mean by a people producing the fruit of it? Well, it's the opposite of what they were displaying. The proud rejection of Christ. Proud reliance on their own knowledge. Proud protection of their own reputation. Proud protection of their own accolades. Their own commitment to the details of religion. What is this fruit of the kingdom? What is it that must be produced? Matthew's already made this clear to us. He's already made it clear to us. It is the childlike faith of Matthew 18 that enters with humble dependence and trust in the Lord. It is the fruits of repentance that John proclaimed in Matthew 3.8 to bear the fruit of repentance. It's what Jesus said, it's doing the will of my Father. It's brokenness over sin and the spiritual character of the Beatitudes. What is it that Jesus was looking for that God was expecting? Poverty of spirit. Those are the ones who are in the kingdom of God. Mourning over sin, being meek, hunger and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful, being pure in heart, being a peacemaker, being one who's persecuted for the sake of righteousness, not being the one who's persecuting the righteous, which is exactly what they were doing. The fruit is love for Jesus. The fruit is love for God's Son, for the Messiah. The fruit is a love for God's glory. The fruit is a, gracious, is a trust in His gracious salvation. It's what Paul would later say to the Philippians. It is the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and the glory of God. This is the righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The righteousness that could only come in Christ, their Messiah, whom they are rejecting. Among us, it's the kingdom of God that's not Evident by not eating and drinking, in other words, hyper-focus on externals and secondary matters, but it's the righteousness of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What does God want from His people who received such privileges? He wants from them faith. He wants from them love for Him. He wants from them righteousness. He wants from them ones who will not reject the Holy Spirit, but yield to Him, yield to His Word, be united in love, know the grace that He has designed. For us, it's a great picture, or it's pictured mightily in John 15. We won't turn there, because I want to quickly get to the end here. That which is of abiding in Christ, it is having His Word richly abiding in us. It is trusting Him by faith and obeying Him. And here these leaders would not have it. And this is only the beginning of the severity of the rebuke of the Lord. It's going to be more intense as we walk through, climaxing and ultimately that chapter 23 in which He excoriates them for their proud rejection of Him. 
So the fact is they were unwilling to humble themselves as a child, unwilling to repent, unwilling to love their own Messiah, unwilling to yield to his authority. So what's going to happen? It's going to be taken away. You won't produce the fruit of it, so it's going to be given to a people who will. The first level is these leaders. It's going to be taken away from you leaders, and it's going to be given to another people. That includes both Jews and Gentiles. But ultimately, what the Lord is saying goes even deeper than that. Even deeper than that. While many Jews would be saved initially as a nation, they ultimately would reject Him. As a nation, they ultimately would turn their back on God's gracious offer of salvation. At the end, the ultimate trajectory of what the Lord is saying here is not only is it going to be taken away from you leaders, but it's going to be ultimately even taken away from the very nation of Israel and given to a people, namely the Gentiles, who will produce the fruit of faith and worship and obedience to God. And this is precisely the story of Acts. This is precisely the story of Acts. The gospel goes first to the Jews. Some received it. There were 3,000 saved on the day of Pentecost after Peter's sermon. There were others who were saved right after that. But eventually, as the gospel kept going to them, as the Holy Spirit kept bearing witness to them, they kept refusing it. Until we come to the end of Acts, and Paul says in verse 25 of Acts 28, I'll read it to you. He says this, He says that Paul had spoken one parting word to these Jews who had come to visit him, that he was trying to convince that Christ was the Messiah. They rejected it, and so Paul says this, The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. So what is the result then of this hardness? Verse 28, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. It's taken away from you. It's being removed from you. You have scorned God's grace. It will be given to others. And this is both tragic and glorious. Tragic because it's the missed opportunity of God's own people. And yet it's glorious because it is the extension of salvation to the other ends of the earth. Now I want to ask you a question then on this. Did God change His mind? Did God change his mind? Was this a turn in the road for the Lord, as it were? Was this something different that came about that was not what was expected or not what was intended? And the answer to that is, of course, no. Of course not. Of course not. Jesus had already said when he was speaking to the Jews in John chapter 10, he says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I have other sheep who will hear my voice, though you, the ones who should have heard it, do not listen, that are not listening. He said to them, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them and they will hear my voice. In other words, they will not cover their ears and rebel. They will not have ears that cannot hear, but they will listen to my voice and they will become as one flock with one shepherd. He says later in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Tremendous testimony of not only his deity, but also God's saving plan in him. What did they want to do? Well, just what they wanted to do in the parable. They wanted to pick up stones and kill him. Why? Because they did not hear his voice. Is this new? No. God had already said that his salvation and the blessing of his grace was intended to extend to the ends of the earth in Genesis 12.3. 
God had already anticipated this in Daniel 7.14 when he says the Son of Man is going to come and they're going to be from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and language are going to be gathered under him to worship him. It's the very picture at the end of the age in Revelation chapter 5. Just listen to this. Who's going to be around the throne singing a new song? Men from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And what will they say? They will say, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your own blood. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. These are the ones who produce the fruit of it, men from every tribe, nation, and tongue. This was always God's plan, always God's plan. Jesus had been hinting that, about that throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, or Matthew has been, excuse me, including the Gentile women in the genealogy, the Magi from the East, the Gentile centurion, the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15. All of these are testimonies that God's salvation is extending beyond the Jews. This was always what the prophets anticipated. Isaiah 45, 22, Turn to me all the ends of the earth and be saved. It's what Jesus is going to say at the end of Matthew. Go and make disciples of all of the nations. So if God isn't changing his plan, what is happening? What is he saying? If it's not ultimately a change, what is he saying? He's saying this. It's not a statement of change, but it's a statement of judgment. Again, the offer of salvation had come to the Jews first. They had first dibs, as it were. They were the ones whom the Messiah belonged to. They are the ones who have the promises. And he's saying, now that's being removed from you and it's being given to another. You're essentially going to be set aside. And it's going to be given to a people who will respond in faith. He's essentially saying this, you just lost it. You just lost it. You just lost your opportunity. God is going to accomplish His purpose, but you lost your opportunity to partake and participate with Him in this glorious work. You had the privileges, but you scorned them. You had the promises, but you refused them. You had the revelation, but you would not listen to it. You had the hope of salvation, but you did not want it. The Messiah came to you, but now it's over. It's over. The cornerstone you have rejected so it's being removed and then he takes it deeper in verse 44 not only has this opportunity this privilege been taken from you but now you can only expect judgment and he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces but on whomever it falls it will scatter him like dust in other words this messiah who came to be your savior is going to be your judge He's quoting here from Isaiah 8, 14. And then in Isaiah 8, he's referencing a nation who had rejected God's word through the prophet. And now he's saying, even worse, you who are rejecting the eternal and living word who's in front of you. What's this imagery? He who falls on the stone will be broken. In other words, those who oppose Christ like these leaders will ultimately be destroyed. How many have opposed Christ in the name of Christ through the history of the gospel? Where are they? Where are they? They have not stood against the name of Christ. Nations have risen and fallen, but yet the name of Christ is still proclaimed. On whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. In other words, those who reject Christ will eventually be destroyed by him. In the near future, as Jesus is going to say again in these other parables, that's going to be the destruction of the temple. It's going to be the destruction of many of your own brethren. The Jewish revolt that was going to end with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and then a few years after that with a whole mass of people committing suicide of Jews up on Masada as the Romans overtook them. What's going to happen eventually? You're going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be annihilated. Your people are going to be taken prisoner and treated terribly and killed. You who killed God's prophets, now God is going to destroy you. Your opposition will not stand. Ultimately, this is a picture of the future. 
The stone, if you'll remember in Daniel 2, we won't turn there for time. Daniel 2, 34 through 35, the stone that is going to come and to crush all of the kingdoms. Go to Iran, go to North Korea, go to Russia, go to Turkey, go to Egypt, go for that matter even to Israel at this point. And they reject the name of Christ, that they hate the name of Christ. And they may think that they are strong, but they are not. Because the stone which they have rejected, the one whom God has given, will ultimately win. He will be victorious. He will be victorious. But right now he's confronting their own false kingdom. And they get it. Verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And they sought to seize him, but they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. I want to address two things quickly. In about five minutes. One, does this mean then that God is finished with Israel? Does it mean that He's finished with Israel? Does it mean this? Does it mean now that God's promises that were to Israel in the Old Testament prophets are now fulfilled in the church and He's done with them? Is that what it means? Does it mean that He is finished with them as a nation? The answer to that is no. It doesn't mean that at all. It does mean this, that their judgment is real and his rejection of them as a nation, his withholding of his salvation from them and the promises of the kingdom is real. It's very similar to what he said through Jeremiah in the Old Testament when he divorced the nation of Israel. Was it a final divorce? No, it was a divorce of that wicked generation, but his promises still stood. And he would again promise that there is going to come a day in which in your land they will say married to the Lord. It's a similar thing here. The kingdom is being taken away from you now. Forever? No. No. That's not what he's saying at all. They are not cut off forever. His saving purposes have simply turned to the Gentiles. And even as we read last week by the Apostle Paul who said to make them jealous. To make them jealous. Turn over very, very briefly to Romans 11. Romans 11 to answer this question. Now, we're going to have to go through this much quicker than I thought, but I want you to just pick out a few verses here. Romans chapter 11. This is, beloved, the very question that the apostle is dealing with, actually beginning in chapter 9, all the way ending here in chapter 11. This is the question he is answering. Has God rejected his people, Israel? Has he rejected them as a nation? This people who have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. This people whom the apostle, a Jew himself, weeps over for their salvation. Has God God rejected him. That is the question that is being answered. And Paul's answer to that is an emphatic no. No, he hasn't. He hasn't. He says in verse 19, speaking to the Gentiles, you will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in to what? The true vine of Israel. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold the kindness and the severity of God. To those who fail, severity. But to you, you Gentiles, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. You were cut off from what by nature is a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. In other words, the promises and the covenants and the blessings given to Israel. You are now a partaker of those blessings. How much more though, those who are the natural branches, those whom they were given to and to whom they belong, be grafted into their own olive tree. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Notion, a partial hardening, not a complete hardening, has happened to Israel until at the point of time when it will end, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Right now, God's focus is on a people producing the fruit of it. But that will come to an end too because of their unbelief. And in the end, you who are a natural branch, you to whom the covenant and the promises belong, will be saved. Verse 26. So all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. 
Notice the promise. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. That is a promise to Israel. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. But from the standpoint right now, from the gospel, yes, they are your enemies. Yes, they are opposing the work of God as they've always opposed the work of God. But from the standpoint of God's choice, His election of them, His calling of them, His giving His promises to them, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Yes, God will be faithful to those promises. Yes, they will be saved. But yes, that is going to come after a time of judgment. When this period of rejection is over. When the time of the Gentiles have come in. And if you will remember, there is for the Gentile church the expectation next of the great apostasy. They will apostatize too. And when they do, God will turn His attention again to you, His people. I don't know how much more clearly Paul could have said it. I don't know. There it is. No, he's not finished. But yes, he has turned his face away for right now. He has. Read Jeremiah 33. A future is coming when they will be know the blessings of God. Let me end you with these two thoughts. What are some applications to us? And I'm only going to mention these because of lack of time. One, this is a warning about resisting the Holy Spirit. This is a warning about resisting the Holy Spirit's work in your life. If you have not yielded your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit is constantly, every time the word is preached, every time you hear the gospel, it is the Spirit that is seeking to break your stony heart. But there is a time when that work will end. And that is the warning. Even as it did to that generation, so it will to you. It will to us as a nation, eventually but also to us as individuals. He says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Hebrews chapter 6, 4-6, through 6, you can be, have received enlightenment, you can have received the message and the testimony and the witness of God's Word, but if you only produce stones and worthless fruit, you will be Rejected. The ground that drinks, verse 7 of Hebrews 6, rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful for those sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. So if you have not repented, if you do not have a trust in Christ, this is a warning to you. God will bring an end to your opportunity. Don't do it. This is also an encouragement and a warm invitation to receive the Spirit's witness to Christ. If you feel the conviction of conscience, if you don't know Him, and if you feel the, the truthfulness of the gospel being impressed upon you, do not resist the work of the Spirit because God's salvation is open to you. It is open to you and He will receive you to Himself. No one is ever judged on the last day because God didn't work in their heart. And I mean that in this sense. No one will have an excuse on the last day and say, but you didn't. The rejection of the gospel and judgment will be always be based on, but you didn't respond. You were unwilling to respond to the voice of God. There was a question asked last week about how this fits together with election. How does this fit together with the sovereignty of God? And it fits together in this way. God is calling out to you through the gospel. You must respond. And if you respond, and if you wrestle with your own unbelief and your own hard heart, you're crying out to Him to be gracious. And if you win in that wrestling match with God, you will look back and say, it was God who did it. But if you feel the tinges and the conviction of conscience, you are to respond to this grace of the Holy Spirit. For that is God sovereignly working in your life. And those of us who know Him can bear abundant and jubilant testimony to that fact. That we stand here in Christ because of His grace, because of His kindness, and because of His mercy. But you must seek Him with all of your heart. We're going to pray because...
I want to mend it over. And then we'll close the service and not have a closing hymn. But let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for the testimony of Christ. We thank you most gloriously for your son, whom you have given to us, whom you have held up to us as your salvation and our hope. May we who know him grow in our love for him. May those who don't know him come to know him even this day and not resist the work of the Spirit. And you will receive all of the glory in the end. We thank you for us gathering together. And we pray these things in the matchless name of Christ, again, who has released us from our sins and whom we anticipate to return in his glorious kingdom. We pray in his matchless name. Amen.